FTI's Financial Services Podcast. FTI is a global advisory firm. We help organizations manage change, mitigate risk, and resolve disputes. I'm your host, Tilsia Toledo. I have over 25 years of experience in the financial services industry. This show is about the people I've met along the way and leading during uncertain times. You will hear from finance executives, law firm partners, dedicated government professionals, and many others. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tosia. Happy to be here. So I am super excited about this episode because anytime I get to talk to somebody that has such a vast history and experience, I know that it's going to be good and we're going to have a lot of really interesting stories to talk about. But why don't we start from the beginning and just give me a sense for what caused you to get into law practice? Well, I like to joke that I got into law practice because of the lack of job prospects for a political science major, but that's only a a partial joke. Back when I was young, becoming a lawyer really played to my strengths in terms of the things that I like to do. Lawyers read and they write and they speak and and advocate on behalf of clients. And I, I saw those as things that I was good at. And it just made a lot of sense to me to pursue law as a career. And so when you first got started, was there a specific area that drew you? Like what what area of the law did you think you were going to be a part of? (laughs) Well, of course, I ended up doing something different from what I thought I was going to do. I thought that I would be a litigator. And, you know, I thought maybe the path for me would be to start with a job in a prosecuting office. But I graduated from law school in 1983 in a pretty bad economy and didn't have a job coming out of school. In fact, the first job that I had, this is the truth, uh, after I graduated was uh, selling clothes. I was working in the uh, Eddie Bauer store on 18th Street in Washington, D.C. That wasn't a legal job. I wasn't in their general counsel's office. I was actually selling clothes. When I finally did get a job, it was with a very small firm in Northern Virginia. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. It had a general practice, but mostly what it did was it represented truckers and trucking firms and short-line railroads and things like that. And I almost immediately started looking for another job. And I felt like it made a lot of sense for me to go to work for the government. I thought that I'd be able to go to work for an agency, develop knowledge and skills, and then go back to the private sector and leverage that. And when I took the job at the OCC, I saw it initially as like a three or four year kind of deal. And then I would go back to work for a law firm. Well, yeah, I stayed there 31 years, totally unexpected, but it made a lot of sense. It never really got boring. And when it started to get boring, something would come along. So my first job was in the enforcement division, not exactly a prosecutor, but kind of a prosecutorial type of role for the OCC. But coming out of law school, never in my wildest dreams would I have thought that I would go to work for a federal banking agency and become a bank regulatory lawyer. So it's always good to have a plan, but you also have to be open to possibilities. You just never know what opportunities are going to come at you down the road. And so you end up making that move. You start at the OCC. You're there for, like you said, over 30 years. And, you know, one of the things that I found really super fascinating when I was reading your bio was the fact that you testified six times before Congress on enforcement and BSA AML matters. I can only imagine what it's like to testify before Congress, but you've done it. So what is it like? Well, at least for me, it was kind of a a star chamber. 
when you testify in the kinds of circumstances that I did, where the agency was under fire for something, you really have to approach it with a recognition that you're not coming to this exercise from a place of strength. And you have to think carefully about how you define success in that context. I defined it as survival. I felt like if I walked out of the hearing room with my head still attached to my shoulders, I had a pretty good day. During my OCC career, it seemed like I was often asked to defend the agency in very contested types of matters. The first hearing involved Riggs Bank. There were actually two of those hearings. I testified before the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations on HSBC. I testified on the Independent Foreclosure Review and I testified on Operation Choke Point. None of these were circumstances where I was going up there to tell a positive story. And it's almost kind of an art form when you do this. It's important that you play your role. It's a little bit of a kabuki theater. And part of my role was to acknowledge the agency's failings. And if I didn't do that, the consequences would have been really bad for the agency as well as for me. But you can't just go up there and fall on a sword. At the same time, you have to point out the lessons learned from whatever it is that happened and then the path forward so that it doesn't happen again. Just to give you a little bit of, a, of an anecdote, when I testified before the Senate Permanent Committee on, on Investigations on uh, RIGS, this would have been uh, 2004, this committee, by the way, is very interesting. For many, many years, it was chaired by uh, Senator Levin, who we lost recently, but it was operated in a very bipartisan way. So when the Republicans had the Senate, Levin would become you know, the lead minority senator. And then when the Democrats had the Senate, he would become the chairman. It was very, very collegial. And uh, he was a tough guy. He was really smart and a former prosecutor, and he knew how to ask questions. He asked very detailed, penetrating questions, and he had a great staff. I mean, he was so prepped. So I go up there testifying on Riggs Bank, which was not, again, not a good story uh, for the OCC at all. And so to try to take some air out of the balloon immediately, in my opening statement, I owned up to the agency's failings. I admitted that we should have done some things better. And as I'm speaking, I see Senator Levin, he's got this big legal pad and he's just like scratching stuff off, going down the list, scratching stuff off. And I'm thinking like, you know, what, what is up with that? Anyway, we get done with it. Uh, I walked out, my head was still on my shoulders and I, and I went up to one of the staffers who I knew and I said, that was kind of interesting. I saw Senator Levin, you know, with all this scratching out on his legal pad. I said, what, you know, what was that all about? He said, oh, those, he was crossing out all the questions that he was going to ask you if you didn't own up to the agency's errors. Good lesson there. I tried to put the best face on it that I could for the agency. But at the same time, if your role is to go up there and take some lumps and you, and you don't do it, it'll end up being a very bad day for you and your agency. So, I mean, you went into it recognizing that that was your role. I'm curious about how did you end up getting even selected? Because, I mean, I know that I've been in a situation where, especially as a banker, I used to do presentations for, for transactions and they were not always the sexiest transactions, right? For lack of a better word. And so I knew that I was going to get some tough questions when I'm, when I'm running a meeting. But how did you get selected? And tell me about how did you prepare? Those are great questions. The first time I testified was in 2004 on Riggs Bank, and there were two hearings where I was the witness and one hearing where I prepared the controller. 
testify. So there were three hearings in all. This is going back a ways, but if you remember, Riggs Bank got kind of caught up in 9-11 and the aftermath of 9-11. And there were allegations of funds that went through certain embassy accounts and possibly into the hands of the 9-11 hijackers. And there were other issues as well. Riggs had really kind of cornered the market on embassy banking accounts. And some of these embassies were connected with countries that you know, did not have the best reputation. For example, they had numerous accounts for Augusto Pinochet, the former Chilean dictator. I mean, he was brutal. He murdered tons of people. You know, Riggs, what they did really was in order to keep this business, they didn't ask the kind of hard questions that you would expect a banker to ask when they're opening high-risk accounts. Anytime that there's a problem with a bank, the first reaction is from the public and from Congress is, oh, that's terrible. And then the second reaction is that, how come the regulators didn't catch this? Because the, the Riggs matter involved BSA AML, and I was kind of the BSA AML guy at the OCC at the time, I was tapped to do this. And it, it was a little bit awkward because the bank examiners you know, who examined Riggs, they didn't report to me. I mean, I was a lawyer in a law department. It wasn't like I dropped any balls. I looked at it, number one, as a challenge. And secondly, it's kind of an honor. I felt like the fact that the agency had enough confidence to put me out there in such a public setting, I felt really energized by that and kind of honored to do it. And I, I always approached the hearings that way. And as far as the prep, I mean, you study up, you learn everything that you need to learn. And at least back in the day, uh, OCC did a good job of prepping us. I thought we would do the murder board type exercise where you get in a room and people fire questions at you. And in all honesty, I usually felt like the questions that I got in the prep were harder than the questions that I got at the hearing. That means I was well prepared. Oh, excellent. So you were there for six times. Is, is there any specific memorable moment that, that you want to share or delve into a little bit more? All these hearings were a little bit different, and they stood out for different reasons. I remember the hearing that I, that I was referencing with the Senate Permit Subcommittee on Investigations, and I remember Senator Levin, like, looking me in the eye and just ask, you know, this isn't the first time that your agency's dropped the ball. I mean, doesn't this stuff register with you? And I looked back at him, and I told him very honestly that 9-11 changed my world, and it changed our world in the regulatory agencies, just like it changed the world of all Americans. And it wasn't something that I scripted or really even thought about beforehand. I think he was asking an honest question and I was giving him an honest answer. I was glad I said that. I think it needed to be said. Excellent. And then, you know, as deputy chief counsel from 2000 to 2016, you oversaw major OCC enforcement actions and you were there during the internet bubble. And, you know, we talked about being there during the Great Recession. What was that period of time like? I was there during a very tumultuous time. You know, the first half of my career, I was, was all in the enforcement division. I started as a staff attorney, eventually became director. The second half of my career, the last 16 years, I was the agency's deputy chief counsel. And uh, I continued to supervise the enforcement division, but I wasn't actually in the enforcement division anymore. I was above it. And I, I really think that that period of my career was defined by two events. The first one was 9-11 and its aftermath. And the second one was the financial crisis and its aftermath. Two things that I could not have foreseen. As far as like, you know, good stories, I mean, we could probably spend a few hours 
since uh, this is the 20th anniversary, I'll just tell you my my 9/11 story. Yeah, this one this one really sticks with me because it really defined my career. It changed my career in a lot of ways. So 9/11, if you remember, was a Tuesday and a beautiful day. I remember the day so well. I remember the sky was beautiful. Right, not a cloud, and it was I don't know maybe like 80 mid 80s. I mean, it was just a gorgeous, gorgeous late summer day, and my family and I had just come back from vacation. We had taken the previous week. We were at the beach. My kids were little. I remember taking them to daycare that day. And September 11th is my son's birthday. He was born on September 11th, 1999. I remember dropping him and his sister off at the daycare. You know, you kiss him goodbye. And I I wished uh, Evan a happy birthday. And, you know, I go into the office and I was really in a great mood, just kind of relaxed, back from vacation, son's birthday, beautiful day, all that. So I go in and my boss at the time, used to have a weekly senior staff meeting. And it was like at nine o'clock or something like that, like nine to 10. And, you know, we just settle in there, she and I, and my counterpart, we kind of get into the meeting and then the phone rings and it's her husband. And he just says one thing, he says, turn on the TV. So she turns on the TV and the first plane had already hit the tower. And, you know, all the, the broadcasters were speculating, like, well, did the pilot have a heart attack or was this some kind of an accident? I mean, at this point, I still don't think people got it. I don't think they realized it was a terrorist attack. And then within moments, the second plane hits the second tower. And at that point, all doubt is erased. We all knew that this wasn't an accident. And then one of our lawyers came in the room and said that there's been an explosion at the Pentagon. I right? didn't know it was a plane you know, explosion. So we had a conference room that looked right across the Potomac River into Virginia. And I went over to the conference room and I could see the smoke billowing out of the Pentagon. And I went to my wife's office. My wife was an OCC attorney. And I closed the door and I said that we're under attack. And you know, she looked at me kind of funny because I don't think she understood what I was saying. I think she thought that, oh, the OCC's critics in Congress and the media are ganging up on us again. No, I said the United States of America is under attack. And she got up, grabbed her coat, went downstairs, went to the parking garage, left. And it's good she left when she did, because if you recall, D.C. turned into complete gridlock. If you worked in an office building, you couldn't even get out of the garage because the streets were complete gridlock. She got out kind of ahead of that, went and picked up the kids, brought them home. And I stayed for various reasons. You know, part of it was that I didn't want to be in the same place as her. My office was like three blocks from the Capitol. Flight 93 was still up in the air. And I really thought I was probably going to see a commercial jet flying to the Capitol. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And you know, she got home safely. I called my mom. She was alive at the time. Just tell her I'm okay. Don't worry. And I just stayed. I stuck it out. I wanted to make sure that everybody on the floor got out. One of our attorneys was a quadriplegic. I definitely wanted to make sure that he got out he, safely. He did. And then that was kind of it. But for me as a lawyer, as somebody who worked in the BSA AML area, this was such a game changer because up to that point, BSA AML was looked at as an annoying record keeping and reporting statute. And every once in a while, a bank will stub their toe and they'll get fined. But it wasn't like in the center of the radar screen. Well, after 9-11, it was in the center of everybody's radar screen. It went from being a compliance matter to being a national security issue. And so the, the lives of everyone who was an AML compliance professional just changed overnight. You know, it became the top supervisory priority for the banking agencies and certainly for the industry. Had that not happened, I 
I don't know that I would have continued to work in the BSA area as extensively as I did. But after that happened, there was so much, so much to do. First, you want to make sure the financial system continues to operate. But then a few weeks later, we had the Patriot Act, the Treasury and the banking agencies had to issue a ton of regulations. Enforcement actions came after that. I mean, there was just so much to do. So 9-11 really, for me, was a life-changing type of event. Thank you for sharing that. During 9-11, I was actually still living in New York, which is why I think about it so much. And even to this day, for me, it's hard. Like when I come out of the subway, I'm looking for the Twin Towers because that used to be my marker, you know, to know, okay, that's South, North, East, West. I had not thought about the connection to 9-11 and all the BSA, AML regulations because I ended up coming into this field a little bit later. You know, back then I was a banker. And when you talk about what a beautiful day it was and all those kind of things, it's like I worked on a trading floor. And so there was nothing but screens surrounding me showing what was happening. And when the second plane hit, like we knew, like we were like, okay, we are under attack. And everybody just started packing up packing up and heading out because I was working at one of the largest banks in the nation, right? So not knowing like who's going to be the next target. You know, going back to things I never thought I'd see, I never, I never thought I would see commercial jets fly into buildings, right? That's, right. that's one thing. A few years later, financial crisis where the biggest financial institutions in the country were like literally teetering on the brink of insolvency or in some right. cases actually insolvent. I never thought I would see either of those things. And I really think that they kind of shaped and defined my career, at least the second part of it. So let's talk a little bit about then your role then. You're there, you're now like in the center of all the regulatory items that are happening as it relates to BSA, AML, and you're weighing in, in terms of opinions and things like that. What was that like for you? And how do you think about those times versus what we are seeing now with crypto and blockchain and things like that? First of all, we did a 180. People don't remember this, but right before 9-11, the priority in the Bush administration, which was pretty new at that time, was really to roll back the BSA. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember pre-9-11 being called to the Treasury Department to meet with some fairly senior people and explain to them why it was important to have a requirement to report suspicious transactions. That's not an exaggeration. There was a lot of emphasis on burden reduction It went so far that Congressman Ron Paul, not Rand, but Ron, his father, uh, was a congressman at the time. He introduced legislation called the Bank Secrecy Act, Sunset Act, which would have required the banking agencies and Treasury to abolish the BSA. And that wasn't like a crazy kind of idea at the time. We had the bank agency had introduced a proposed rulemaking called the Know Your Customer Rule. It was roundly criticized. We had to withdraw it under pressure. And Congressman Paul's bill had 21 co-sponsors and it it had bipartisan support. It didn't make it, but just the fact that you could introduce a bill like that and have bipartisan support for it just shows you what the times were like. Well, after 9-11, it was 180 degrees the opposite. There were bills that had been floating around in Congress for years that were going nowhere that found their way into the Patriot Act and ultimately became part of the whole framework of uh, AML with the Patriot Act regs and things that, that have come after that. I think that where we are now is really a very different place in a lot of ways. I think what we've seen is that the bar initially got raised right after 9-11, but it's continued to get raised. And what we expect financial institutions to do now compared to what we expected them to do then is just so much more. The compliance obligations and burdens are much higher, as is the cost. And at the same time, 
what we're seeing are changes that I think are revolutionary in the way that financial services are delivered in a regulatory framework that, frankly, is struggling to keep up. I mean, these regs that were written 20, 30 years ago were written to address problems of a different time and place. When 9-11 happened, the internet was still a new thing. There was no such thing as a smartphone. Nobody knew what cryptocurrency was because it didn't exist. We're in a different world now, but I think one of the real challenges is how do we take this old framework and modernize it and make it apply to the world that we're living in right now? Because this is a very different world than the world that we, we lived in 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, and it's something that you hear people talk about all the time. I mean, we have the AML Act of 2020, which has come out. You talked about KYC. Now everybody talks about KYCC, right? So it's not good enough to just know your customer, but now you have to know your customer's customers. So there's a higher level of due diligence that is needed. But at the same time, we're entering this era where you do have cryptocurrency. You know, one of the main things about doing things in the blockchain is that you have this level of anonymity. But at the same time, people are looking for some kind of guidance, the more and more I talk to folks, there's this view that because there's no specific guidance that we're in this era where you're being regulated by enforcement as opposed to being regulated by guidelines. And that not necessarily being a, a good thing because people who want to do things the right way don't really understand the rules of engagement. I'm, I'm curious about what are your thoughts about that? You know, it's not a good thing. And I, I've never been a proponent of making policy by enforcement action. I think just a fundamental fairness demands that when you regulate an industry, that you tell the industry what the expectations are that they're expected to live up to. And if they don't live up to them, that's when you get into the enforcement environment. But I think the difficulty we have right now is that because of technology and because of changes in the marketplace, the BSA AML framework just isn't a great fit for some of the mechanisms that we have to deliver financial services now. And fintech is, you know, in itself revolutionary, but you go a step further with cryptocurrency. You know, one of the latest things with cryptocurrency, initially we were dealing with exchanges that functioned as gatekeepers and they could be regulated as money transmitters. That's fine. But now we're moving into a world of decentralized finance. There really isn't a gatekeeper, but from a policy perspective, I don't think that it is tolerable for the government to allow those types of platforms to function in a completely unregulated way. I just don't think that's tenable. And so the question then really becomes not do we regulate it, but how do we regulate it? And I think we're seeing that played out now in some of the discussions that are happening, not just with the Treasury and the banking agencies, but also with the SEC and the, and the CFTC and other agencies. No, I agree. I mean, I think, well, one of the first things is being clear about what's a security and what's not a security. And watching that play out and hearing what the regulators say, you just have to stay tuned because it ebbs and flows. It changes. Yeah, that's the hook, certainly for the SEC. And then, you know, for the CFTC is whether or not it's a commodity. Yesterday, the government came out with its report on stable coins, where they basically said that the path forward should be that if you're an issuer of a stable coin, you need to be a bank and regulated as a bank. That would take legislative action, which is not likely to happen, at least not anytime soon, but that would be a huge game changer. I think that the government on a policy level is still trying to figure it out, but I think everybody recognizes, you know, number one, that crypto is a real thing. It's important. It's getting increasingly important and it's getting bigger. And it also presents certain vulnerabilities from an illicit finance aspect that have to be policed. Otherwise, it would be the Wild West.
No, I agree. I mean, I think that there's always a balancing act that you look for because innovation is great. The things that you see and hear about, the way it can democratize certain areas is amazing. And so we live in such interesting times right now. But at the same time, you, you want to make sure that at the end of the day, look, safety and soundness of the financial system is something that's critically important. And I spent my time at the FDIC where that was just ingrained that that was you know one of the critical tenants. So I totally hear you. It's really the bedrock of a successful financial system and economy. You have uh, financial products that are delivered in a way that are safe and sound, that comply with the law, you know, that aren't compromised by criminal elements. And if you don't have that, it's very, very hard to have a safe and sound financial system. So let's talk a little bit about the move that you made because you went from the OCC to then going into private practice and now you're a partner at Davis Polk. Tell us about how did you find that move going from public service to now being in the private sector and also how you leverage what you learned during your time at the OCC in your practice and for the benefit of your clients. It was always in the back of my mind that someday I wanted to return to the private sector. As I said at the outset, I, I didn't think it was going to take 31 years, but you know, I, it was always kind of part of the master plan. And as you know, one of the nice things about a, a federal career is that you get to retire at a relatively young age and then figure out what to do for the rest of your life. And for me, I was in my mid-50s. I felt like I was too young to really retire. You know, I had kids' educations to pay for and things like that. So it was always part of the plan that I would go back to work. I just had to kind of figure out what kind of work. I thought for a while, you know, do I want to be a lawyer? Do I want to work for a consultant? Do I want to go in-house? Do I want to do something else? And I took some time. I would advise anybody who's leaving the government, unless they know definitely where they're going to do this, to figure out what you want to do next. In my case, I took six months. It was fantastic. It really was. I like to refer to it as the best six months of my life. My son was still living home. He was in high school. He played high school soccer. I went to all his games. I went to most of his practices. I went to all of his tournaments. It was fun. And I, I really didn't work. I mean, I kind of kept my eye on things, things that were happening, but I made it a point not to work. But ultimately, I decided to stay in the legal profession. I just felt like at my core, that's what I was. I was a lawyer. You know, I'd always been a lawyer, and so I kind of dismissed the consulting route, although I'm not, I'm not uh, being critical of anybody. Just for me, that wasn't the path that I wanted. I, was at, I didn't go immediately to Davis Polk. I worked for Buckley for four years, which was really, really a good experience. I wasn't, you know, wasn't looking to leave, but Davis Polk presented a, a great opportunity for me and was a really good platform for what I do. I made the move last January. Two things, I guess, more than anything else. The one, obviously is BSA AML. I represent lots of different types of financial institutions, not just banks, but fintechs, crypto firms, broker dealers, really the whole gamut. I do a lot of advisory work. I help them develop programs and policies and procedures, deal with regulatory issues. And then the other piece of it, which isn't necessarily tied to BSA AML, is enforcement. Since I spent so many years doing enforcement at the OCC, that's a, a big part of my practice now where I, I represent institutions and enforcement proceedings really by all the regulators, not just OCC. My background, I think is very helpful to clients to be very honest about it. I think that a lot of financial institutions don't really understand the regulatory process or the enforcement process. 
And I'm in a position to demystify it for them because it's, it's not a mystery. These are generally pretty well-defined processes and all supervisory actions, all enforcement actions take similar paths. So being able to explain that to clients alone, I think is helpful. But you know, even more than that, just kind of explaining how regulators think, why when they flag something as a problem, why they do that and what kind of approaches work and what kind of approaches don't work to fix the problem. The key is to not demonize the regulators and say, oh, they're out to get me. That's not helpful. That's just bad energy. You need to understand that they have a job to do and then work with them to fix the problems. They're not always right. And there are ways that you can push back, but not all battles are worth fighting. And usually there's very little percentage in trying to fight with the regulators. So I always try to counsel my clients to maintain good relationships with the regulators, even when they have differences. I completely agree. And I can see how your background would be so incredibly helpful. I think about just the supervisory aspects. What I tell clients sometimes, it may start as a little whisper. And then if you're not paying attention, then they start speaking in normal tone voice. And then if you don't hear that, then it gets louder. And so a lot of times it's like, let's see what has happened. Let me take a look at the whole history because things don't come out of thin air. There's usually some kind of like process and a method that that was followed. Yeah, for sure. And you make a really good point. You don't want to let small manageable problems become large unmanageable ones. Sometimes, unfortunately, that happens. Now, you are also a member of the advisory boards of ACAMS and the ABA-ABA Financial Crimes Enforcement Conference. What updates would you like to see as we move to have more and more non-bank financial institutions in the financial services market? When you see how fast the area is growing, it's growing dramatically. You know, kind of going back to what I said earlier, the AML regulatory framework now is more than 50 years old. The BFA was enacted in 1970, and most of the regs were written decades ago. And I really think that this framework is showing its age and struggling to keep up with developments in technology and in the marketplace. And to this point, the government's approach to innovation really has been to shoehorn non-bank financial participants like fintechs and crypto firms into the existing framework rather than create something new. And the results of that, I, I would probably say are mixed at best. The example would be like, we take crypto. I said earlier that crypto exchanges have been regulated as gatekeepers. They're treated like money transmitters and money transmitters are money services businesses and money services businesses are subject to a program requirement under the BSA and SAR requirement and other requirements. But is a crypto exchange really a money transmitter? I mean, I always I always looked at it as kind of an uneasy fit. I mean, money transmitter to me is like, you know, Western Union and MoneyGram as opposed to Coinbase. It just seemed like it was kind of a shoehorn, but it was a way to apply the framework to a new and emerging technology when they started to do it. And it works reasonably well. I think there are some areas where compliance is really a challenge, even for the exchanges. I mean, the, the travel rule is a, good, is a good example of that. But now, as we were saying earlier, with DeFi and stable coins, NFTs, does this framework really work at all? I think that's the question. And I personally believe that we probably need a new paradigm for some of these new technologies, that trying to wedge them into the existing framework is not working that well and is not going to work going forward. That's a really, really big lift 
And I don't really know what that paradigm looks like. I just think that we probably at some point are going to need to take a different approach. It will be interesting to see. And this time you get to watch it from the sidelines since you won't be in there while they're doing it. No, sadly, I won't be. So just shifting gears a little bit, Dan, I mean, one of the things I'd like to ask my guests are some questions just about some of the things that you do outside of work. And I do believe that leaders are readers. And I was curious, is there any specific book that you are reading or are there specific books that you tend to gift a lot because you really like the messages? What are you reading nowadays? That's a great question. I I am a reader and there's so many books that I've read in my life that have resonated with me. I mean, I couldn't really begin to scratch the surface, but just to give you a few examples of books that have been meaningful to me, I read Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird many years ago. And I have to say that as a lawyer, the lessons in that book have stayed with me to this day. I just think it's wonderful. It's, a, it's kind of a shame she never wrote another book. It's a, just an American classic. I also thought that Laura Hillenbrand's books, uh, Laura Hillenbrand is a DC-based writer, although she's, I believe she's moved to the West Coast. In the early 2000s and mid-2000s, she wrote two books that I just thought were terrific. One was called Seabiscuit, an American legend, and the other is Unbroken. And I am a, a horse racing fan. I grew up in the Saratoga, New York area. I read Seabiscuit almost like cover to cover, like overnight. I read it over the course of like a day, a day and a half. That is a thick is... book. If you read it overnight, kudos to you. I've read it and it took me more than one night. I was just addicted to it. I just thought it was, it was not just a great story, but just, it was so well told. And then her second book, Unbroken, the American Olympian, Louis Zamperini, who actually ran in the 1936 Munich Games in Germany, but then he was shot down. He was in the military. He was captured by the Japanese and subject to all kinds of just hideous torture, but he overcame it and, you know, went on to live a a really exemplary life. And I I just found both those books, you know, not just to be good reads, but just incredibly inspirational. And I'll throw out one more, which is a little little bit more recent. I thought J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy was a great book. I also found that to be inspirational as well. So I like books that are about long shots and people who overcome odds. And I would say those books are all in that category. Interesting. Well, good list. Very interesting. One thing that you may not know about me is that I am also big into horses. I grew up walking distance from Belmont Racetrack. So I would go every year to the Belmont racing. And at this point, I've done Preakness since I live now here in this area in Maryland. I need that Kentucky Derby uh, trip that I still need to do. I have been to the Derby. I have been to the Preakness. I have not been to the Belmont. That's the only one of the three. But I started going to horse races in the 1970s when I was a kid uh, at Saratoga. I never saw Secretariat run. I did see Affirmed and Ali Dar in Seattle Slough. I've been a fan ever since. In fact, one of the things I like to do just for fun is for the Triple Crown races, I stake my family to a little bit of money and, and we do some some gentle wagering. I have to say that I was I was the clear winner this year, so I'm very proud of that. Oh, there you go. Excellent. Well, Dan, is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, the topic here is really is about leadership. I feel like at this point in my career and in my, in my life that I've learned a lot about success and failure because I've had plenty of both. And I think that the most important factor that determines success by far is a person's attitude. Life is not fair. 
and it will throw you a few curveballs along the way. But if you believe that you're not going to be successful, then I think that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the people who ultimately achieve success, they don't travel an unbroken path. They succeed in spite of the obstacles that they've faced because of the attitude that they bring to their work and to their life. So I guess, you know, for me, the, the closing note is, you know, no matter what challenges that you, you're dealing with, it's always important to keep a positive attitude and keep moving forward. Excellent. Fantastic way to end this episode. Dan, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Happy to do it. I really enjoyed it. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email financeandleadership at fticonsulting.com.